Welcome to Peripheral Thinking, a series of conversations with entrepreneurs, advisors, activists and academics intending to inspire and maybe challenge you with ideas from the margins of the periphery. Why? Because that's where the ideas which will shape tomorrow are hiding today, on the margins, on the periphery. This week I spoke to uh, Marcus Marcus Link. Uh, Marcus described himself as a cultural creative, a phrase I've borrowed and like very much. He's an entrepreneur, researcher and writer. He's co-founder and director and and, uh, the chief operating officer of New Foundation Farms, a regenerative disruptor enterprise in the UK agri-food sector with the mission of establishing regenerative agriculture at scale by transitioning farming practices from unprofitable environmental problem to a profitable ecological solution. In November 2020, the Food, Farming and Countryside Commission in the UK published the report Farming Smarter, the case for agroecological enterprise, which Marcus co-authored and which is based on his research. As a writer, Marcus' special interest is in the theme of human becoming, and he publishes his essays, poems and stories exploring the inner journey on his blog, foolsjourney.me. Marcus, welcome to peripheral thinking. Uh, Great pleasure to be here, Ben. Thanks so much for the invitation. You're very welcome. Now, maybe you can give us just a little sort of potted history of who you are and what brings you to where you are today, as potted as that can be. Yeah, I'll do do my very best. Maybe just start with how I describe myself in my own thinking today. I consider myself to be a writer, a researcher and an entrepreneur. And in one, one, one aspect of my life's journey has been to, to live through such paradoxes and then discover that actually these paradoxes have a level at which they are integrated and they just express themselves in different arenas of life in different ways. The challenge that remains then is how do I make time on for one or the other and, and find the space and time to do it all. Underneath these three pillars, if you want, maybe at a higher level, there's something that Paul Ray in 2000 called the cultural creative. And I'm just going to quote a little bit there from what that means, because I think many may recognize this kind of impulse. And cultural creatives are people who see careers which are fulfilling and provide meaningful contribution to their communities or the world at large. Because of their emphasis on growth and development, cultural creatives can be found reading often. So what I do uh, is very much tied to a restless curiosity. I want to know about things. And that often leads to the confrontation with the world as it is today, because there is that sense, oh, it could be different. So how do we go about that? And the cultural creative is not satisfied with the status quo as the best solution. And I think the world that we live in and the the emergencies we're facing, like climate emergency, but a whole host of other things come together to this interconnected web of crises. And the question is, how do we confront these? Because we can't confront them at the level that we created them. So with that little entree, entrepreneur is an important word for your podcast series. So I thought I'd reflect a little bit on that. Maybe my life began entrepreneurially, not necessarily in the business sense, but I was born in Ireland, although my parents are German and English. And that's because my father was at the University of Galway back then. I mean, shortly after I was born, we did return to Germany and I, was, I went to school there, grew up generally. And I then later moved to the UK, where I completed a degree with the Open University. 
And that's also an aspect of entrepreneurship is that I tried several bricks and mortar universities and with different subjects. But ultimately, uh, since my mid-teens, I've always been involved in projects and actually working with people, earning my own money has been a really important thing about my own identity. So how different forms from self-employment to employment and owning a company and paying dividends and so forth, I've experimented with all of that as at the same time as uh, being interested in different kinds of things. So my entrepreneurial journey from when I was 18, I started a company that printed uh, T-shirts for sports clubs and school leavers, now culminates in its latest iteration in New Foundation Farms, an organization that sets out to be a disruptor enterprise in the UK agri-food space. We believe that it's not good enough to continue the status quo in food and farming. It's a major contributor to many of the challenges on the ecological, economic and social fronts. And uh, we've developed a model with which we might change that at two ends at least, the production end and the distribution end, the interaction with the customer. Another way of describing myself is that I'm a serial entrepreneur who's walked, worked across technology, education, and agriculture. It, te technology plays a huge role in particular through the internet as a platform for communication and commerce and information exchange. I learned HTML1 in the very early days and contributed to a project in 1998 to put an educational platform online that was powered by a database. Very early days, very clunky stuff. However, that, that paved a situation for me that in almost every job I've had, the internet has played a significant role in addressing either commercial interests, informational exchange issues or communication problems. And in all projects, somehow all these areas overlapped. This is also a reason why I dropped out of university the first time is that I created a platform called windpoweronline.com on the back of a research with a fellow student into vertical online marketplaces, for which at the time there was a sort of threshold. They needed X billion dollars of global turnover to be interesting. But the up and coming at the time was the whole world of renewable energy. So we thought, well, that's the future. Why don't we combine the internet with a platform for renewable energy? And off we went. And that opened my journey into venture capital. Through my exposure to venture capital, I got involved with biotechnology projects. And it was in biotechnology that I had my first real sort of crisis, uh, I'd call it a quarter life crisis as sort of just millennials, we were entitled to quarter life crisis. And this was a real dilemma for me. It was the recognition that, and these projects all had a veneer of purpose, but ultimately the reality behind closed doors was absolutely ruthless profit seeking and an engineering of a world that, uh, that was designed for the maximization of ultimately personal profit. Working with other people was an, a necessary evil on the way to one's own profit maximization. That's how I experienced it. And I struggled with that because I was interested in the purpose side. I recognize profit as a as business hygiene as opposed to a goal in its end, in its own in its own right. So I, I finished my degree with the Open University because that allowed me to live my life in a way that I wanted to. Um, I, I studied philosophy, religious studies, and, and did a few business things on the side because of my interest in how people tick and why they're motivated to do the things they do. Uh, I, uh, with hindsight, I chose the wrong subjects, but that's, that was my motivation. 
got that finished. And then I ended up working in England for an organization called Riverford Farms. So this was a combination of technology, education, and agriculture, where I was hired to set up the meat box scheme, which at the time the business had already done a very good job of growing and selling by way of vegetable boxes, which, which is what a thing that Riverford pioneered. And they had many franchisees across the country. And the challenge was, how do you take something as complicated as meat and deliver and, and roll that out at the same time into this network? So there was a scale, an effort of scaling uh, that was required. And I brought my technological and managerial background and grew the meat box production around the vegetable box business and scaled that up, including all the supply chain issues of working with the small and large farms associated with Riverford, coded the software that ran the purpose-built facility, the meat processing site, and all sorts of other things, and took it from five uh, boxes a week to 5,000 boxes, by which time I needed a break. <laughs> Yes, but that was my that was my real engagement with the industry in a business that to this day absolutely committed to uh, organic as a way of life, as a form of certification, as a business ethos, and that has also gone on to do things well beyond my involvement there with the employee ownership. As a as there are a number of businesses in the UK that have moved on to become employee owned, but Riverford is one of, one of those, and that's a major role model for me and for New Foundation Farms in in that particular aspect. But um, also, without wanting to be critical of Riverford, in my own journey in my engagement with the planet life and consumerism and so forth i found that the organic paradigm is very well intended but it lacks something and there are different angles to talk about this but essentially when you farm organic this is no guarantee that you're actually having ecologically positive impact what organic certification avoids is the routine use of pesticides and the routine use of fertilizer inputs. It doesn't mean that you don't use pesticides. It doesn't mean that you don't use fertilizer. And it certainly means that at the large scale, you do still use industrial methods, including heavy machinery. It's, a, it's an engineering exercise, a logistics exercise that uses the soil as a medium to grow food and fiber. And that means that the environmental impact in the bigger picture of things is certainly better than many industrial conventional orchards. However, ultimately it is not one that has the outcome of regeneration of soil. It has as its goal, the growing in within the industrial paradigm of food and fiber in such a way that it doesn't use chemicals. And, and there are lots of people who grow organic, especially on a small scale, who take this a lot further. But on the certification level, and that's the important thing, the standard setting organizations, they police the inputs, not the outcomes. So this is, this is in terms of my think evolution of my thinking, one of the big insights is that the way we quality assure the way uh, we live within our society with means that may actually be counterproductive to the values that we espouse. So when I'm environmentally friendly, I've thought to myself, surely that must mean that I'm interested in the outcome of actual environmental impact 
as opposed to the particular ways in which I do that, especially if the way in which I do that has a negative outcome. I found a solution to that in my ongoing research in the thinking of many people outside of our geography, uh, far away, often South America, North, Northern America, lots of going on in Australia with a 30 year drought crisis there, other areas. And often what you see, the pattern is that people are challenged sometimes by both economic and ecological, or sometimes just one of those factors that lead to innovation and often a going back in time to how people have done things in the past. And this is the research aspect in me, the curiosity. I want to know how was that done? How did people like Gabe Brown, Alan Savory, Richard Perkins, Ethan Soloviev, how did they come up with, how, what was the journey they took? Gabe Brown is probably the big eye opener for me. He wrote a book called Dirt to Soil, in which he chronicles his 30 year journey from uh, being the non-farming son-in-law of a farming family, taking on the farm and then experiencing four years of absolute crisis with hailstorms, with uh, drought followed by floods and always destroying his entire crop, meaning he was financially at a complete dead end. And instead of giving up, he went back and did a lot of research and trial and error and a 30 year journey followed to be one of the regenerative pioneers. And, and he's quite heavily featured in the film Kiss the Ground as a consequence. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So there, there's, there's a, probably many more things that I haven't now mentioned, but ultimately there's, a, there's something going on in the background. Um, I've got questions, I'm looking into things, and eventually this leads at an opportune moment in 2019 to my co-founder Mark Drewell and me sitting down and in a series of conversations uh, ending up with agriculture as the key thing that we both have experience with and where we see a way of doing things differently that isn't just a change of degrees, but that could be a category change for the way we engage with agriculture. And agriculture is, at the end of the day, one of the key coalfaces where humanity engages with nature. So the way we think about our relationship to nature and the way we then execute that relationship are really key. And the reason we call the new foundation farms is because we imagine that such a way of doing agriculture could be a new foundation for our civilization. So it's as small and as big as that. Maybe actually it makes sense just to uh, just to capture for a minute this so this idea that sort of organic, not necessarily the outcome of organic, not necessarily a, a kind of positive thing, whilst the intent might be going in. And so the kind of difference to, I guess, then the regenerative movement uh, and obviously regenerative this, regenerative that kind of very kind of the danger, I guess, of becoming a kind of buzzword of the moment. So essentially, in its sort of simple terms, what you mean by that is out, is, a, is a positive outcome. Is that what would be a, a simple way of understanding the regenerative idea? Yes. So regenerative is many things. And it is definitely a suitcase word that has already been adopted by many, many interests. What's really helpful, though, instead of trying to come up with new words, which, in fact, I, I definitely tried at the beginning of this journey, only to find that all words are somehow tainted. And so what on, just on that, I was involved as the main researcher and co-author of a report published by the UK-based Food Farming 
and Countryside Commission. In November 2020, we uh, published a report called Farming Smarter, the Case for Agroecological Enterprise. And I had spent a, a whole chapter working through the different uses of the terms agroecological and regenerative. And my particular take, so this is me after a lot of reading and conversation and so forth, I, I believe that what we're trying to achieve is to hit that sweet spot in the Venn diagram where we have social, economic and ecological concerns overlapping. And the one approach to farming practices that has a real grasp of ecology, as in the science of ecology that understands what is actually happening in the soil and how do we interactions with plants, animals and so forth work, is regenerative agriculture. It has a history. It's a term that, uh, that features in research. It emerges out of the, uh, well, epistemologically, it emerges out of conservation agriculture. And it is, if you want, the commercial end of conservation agriculture, where we are concerned not just about positive ecological impact, but at the same time, profitability. And the amazing thing about re the regenerative paradigm is that we can be both economically positive, sorry, ecologically positive and economically profitable. And in, in a way that exceeds the current expectations in agriculture in the subsidy funded regime by a multiple, is that we expect farming to be hard and uh, not make you much. And with some exception, that is true by and large. If we just look at that, uh, this is an amazing opportunity, by the way, politically uh, for agriculture uh, going through Brexit as we divorce from the EU and the common agricultural policy and the subsidy regime, which does have a huge, which has a responsibility for the way things are in agriculture in, in Europe and the UK. So what we in moving away from that, it's time for innovation. And the innovation that's possible and that we are demonstrating with New Foundation Farms is that you can farm profitably, significantly profitably, without subsidy regimes, without environmental encouragement programs. And then the trick to that is effectively that biological diversity and the stacking of economic enterprises, to use a technical term, go hand in hand. So if you stack layers of biological activity from subsoil all the way through to what grows and how you graze and, and get the timing right, you can have a very high density of enterprises on the same land that previously we might have only given to one of those enterprises. And as a consequence, every, every layer integrates in such a way that it may be product, but also input. And that means that you're reducing the inputs that you need to purchase because you're getting them from the ecosystem effect. It increases the resilience as the more complex it gets, the more non-linear it becomes, the more resilient it gets. And as a consequence, you end up with a, what we call a hyper-diverse range of produce where previously you were operating a monoculture. This, at the same time, when you then factor in quality premiums that might be available, but even without, you're already in, in the black, significantly so. And if you then innovate on your routes to market and sell things not as commodities, but as food into your local regional market, you suddenly find that the countryside rural enterprise can be regenerated as well. 
imagine all those people moving back into the countryside and working for uh, workplaces where you're treated as a knowledge worker rather than as an operative where you're working more in a community kind of way with all sorts of different ways of employment, self-employment models and so forth being exercised. And not only have the enterprises stacked on the land, you go from four or five employees per thousand acres to over a hundred in our model. And so this, going back to the conversation you have with Mark in 2019, this is essentially the kind of fruit of that conversation, this epic endeavour that you're describing here with the kind of myriad benefits, the myriad profits. This is the kind of fruit of that, uh, of those conversations. Is that right? So, so if you were going uh, to borrow the awful phrase of the elevator pitch of New Foundation Farms, I mean, how do you describe its, what, what it's doing and what its essence is? Yeah, I'm ter- terrible at elevator pitches Me because too. I, I always <laughs> want to go into the detail and tell you all of that, which is why I'm the COO and not the CEO. But in essence, in investor conversations, New Foundation Farms is a disruptor enterprise in the UK agri-food space. And what that means is that we combine the latest knowledge in terms of production, but also in terms of direct-to-consumer marketing with finance in order to create a, a, a disruptor that's able to produce food and fiber of high quality profitably at scale. So so the one thing, just to break out of the elevator pitch as we're now walking down the corridor, I've talked a lot about the production end of New Foundation Farm. So there's a farm and we're raising funds for a thousand acre farm. On a part of this farm, there may be a barn and that barn is now going to be repurposed as a processing and retail space of approximately 1,000 square meters. And what that enables is that it suddenly goes from a, an organization that's got the production right by being regenerative, that means it is regenerating the landscape within which it is based, and not just selling into the commodity market, but actually processing the food on site means more employees, more enterprises stacked on the same thousand acres. And then from the production space, they're feeding into the retail space, which it's no better way than to smell and taste the food. Imagine a cafe restaurant. Imagine that this then becomes the basis of a logistics hub that distributes food by home delivery direct to your doorstep within the region. And the word region is really important because we, we believe that long-term food is going to go back to a bio-regional model. Uh, we believe that the journeys for food shopping will by and large become shorter we will be able to grow more greater diversity of food in the region. And instead of being dependent on the global food supply chain, we will be topping up our local food basket with the global supply chain as opposed to being a dependent on it. And that's for, for us in our view of looking ahead 10, 20 years, inevitable. And it's also desirable to have a greater food sovereignty as, a, as an island nation. And so our model goes from developing a thousand acre farm to a 10,000 acre bioregion, and then to multiplying that five or six times across the UK, helping other teams in other regions to establish the same kind of things, learning from all the mistakes and great things that we did on the first site. And in rough numbers, it takes it from a thousand acres to 60,000 acres as a combined enterprise. 
Right. I mean, that's, you know, the, the kind of the scale of it, the ambition of it is, you know, as also a kind of a fellow sort of entrepreneurially kind of interested kind of cultural, your phrase again, which I keep giving the, the cultural creative, which I think is a brilliant phrase, by the way, and one I think which really speaks to everybody who's, who's listening to the podcast. But, the, you know, that you know that there is scale built into this, that there is ambition built into this, you know, into this kind of endeavour for me is like it is a really exciting thing. And, you know, a really because obviously we imagine certainly within sort of as an outsider, we imagine when people talk about scale and these kind of things within a food space, you know, it's images of intensive farming and, uh, you know, the, and kind of monoculture and doing less and less of a thing, just extrapolated at scale. And there's a really nice sort of counterweight, obviously, to what you're talking about. Here. Yeah, it's very great reflections. What part of the conversation Mark and I had, uh, we were both change agents, in, but in very different ways. Mark had just published a book at the time called Changing the World We Create, uh, that he co-authored. And one, one of the lessons from his work and our general conversations is that the world, our civilization is an institutionalized civilization. It means it leapfrogs from one, one form of institution to the next. And the Bacana model of change, which is a kind of a graph that shows how institutional life changes inevitably, but it establishes a new normal. And the graph looks a bit like two intertwined hockey sticks. And in between the two hockey sticks, the decline of the old institution and the rise of the new, you have the need for transition. And it's disruptor enterprises that hasten the transition to the new institutional life. So what they do is they imagine how things will be in the future, and then they pivot and explore in parallel paths. How are we going to bring about, for example, renewable energy? And it was the combination of the tech was there for a long time. We had solar panels, we had wind turbines a long time ago. But it was the combination of major VC finance with this knowledge that suddenly supercharged the deployment of these things in big ways. And that got governments excited. And that is the same thing that moved us from landline telephony to mobile phones. And uh, we see this happening in the way we do food, the way we grow it, the way we distribute it. Yeah, so it's, it's the role then of the of the capital bringing partner, the money bringing partner in simple terms is the thing because the kind of vision you have, say, of a kind of bio sort of regional existence, which of course sort of, you know, makes so much sense. And then you think, okay, so what are the things that need to change to get from the world that we are today, which is obviously not like that, to that kind of world as necessary and as opportune as that might be. And so you see your role as disruptor enterprise, bringing in capital, bringing in that partnership as, you know, being both a kind of bridge and sparking other bridges. Yes. So the key observation is that there are so many hardworking, inspired, often young people in the agricultural space working on small plots of land, home delivering a small number of boxes. And what we found is that the, a lot of small doesn't necessarily add up to big. So when you look at the numbers for the UK, there are, in, in 2018, there were 217,000 agricultural businesses meaning businesses farming land the, on, on about 20 million uh, acres of land under agricultural management in the UK. 
So how are you going to get the institutional world that's made up of policymakers, banks, insurers, all sorts of other organizations? How are you going to get the attention of those and ideally also investors in this space? You've got to show that this isn't just the domain of the smallholder. You've got to show that we can take care of food production at scale in this way. And one of the examples that's really astonishing is the Balbo Group in Brazil. The origins of this business go back to the early 1900s, but especially under the leadership of Leontino Balbo Jr. In, starting in the 1980s, this, especially, this organization specialized on sugar production, which now controls 34% of the world's organic sugar. It does so on 60,000 hectares of land that is, on the face of it, a monocrop sugar operation. But the way they do that is that they actually switch their model from growing sugar to caring for an ecosystem, looking after the ecosystem that also grows sugar. And then they innovated along the way and found better ways of harvesting that leaves the litter straight on the field, and then they started using the pulp that's left over from sugar manufacture as, a, as the basis for a thermal power plant that now heats a, and a, provides electricity for a city of 500,000 people. And what's left of that goes back on the field. It's totally circular and the level of biodiversity on these farms exceeds 50% of the nearby Sao Paulo National Park. And this is a monoculture, on the face of it, a monoculture operation. So, so there, are, there are examples around the world, of which is, this is one of my favorites, that show this can be done at a huge scale. It's not the domain of the smallholder. So where you are today, the extent to which where you are today is uh, on, you know, the kind of sort of same sort of vision of what you imagined it might be when you started a couple of years ago. You know, we know what it's like when we uh, start and create sort of new ventures or we take on a, a new project. They assume a life of their own. I'm curious about the journey you're on and the extent to which you're in the place you thought you would be or what surprising turns have come your way. Really good question. Uh, I want to paraphrase this, preface this by something that I've recently become to realize, which is that I don't, I used to think that I create things and I now come to realize that actually I, at best, I am privileged to be part of channeling things. So the question is, am I standing in the right channel? Is this the way the future is going to hit the present moment? And that's exactly as you say, sometimes we find that we're going to, we have to adjust the model or the model has a life of its own new people join the conversation and so forth. And so this year, we've actually, as an organization, gone through a very interesting experience, if that's the right word, for being on this roller coaster of being out in the market for some six months. As a team, we had over 500 meetings with over 100 in investors across the spectrum from social impact investors through VCs and uh, institutional investors, banks, etc., from all sorts of geographies. And by and large, the problem for us was not opening the door. They are very interested. They know this is where things are going. The problem for us was more that it was difficult for these organizations to take a model of the complexity that we had in an institutional world that likes things to be more controllable and simpler and commit money to it. So at an individual level, generally, this was all good. It was at the level of the decision-making committee of the investment committee that uh, things seemed to get stuck. 
So we had large commitments in total of about a quarter of our investment R, so that's 5 million of 20 million, but we didn't have what you could call it an anchor investor. We didn't have an, an, uh, an investor that brought both a large amount of money to the table and the ability to do due diligence and put their name behind this. That would have then drawn everybody else to through to completion. So at this point, we felt that maybe we were just ahead of our time and that we needed to find a different way of doing this. And we did what probably was the wisest thing of all. We first took a break. And then in that break, things started to settle. Things naturally rearranged themselves in our thinking and we came back together to, ref to articulate a refinement of that thinking. And that was around this question, when you're an entrepreneur, what is it that actually creates something out of nothing? Where does the quantum jump in your work happen? And as a consequence, we were able to articulate that our model is, it has a kernel and from that kernel, it radiates out in concentric circles that make the impact of this bigger and bigger, but it doesn't change the fact that at the center of this is one key idea. And that key idea we articulated as being a systems integrator. That means we can work with all the innovation that's happening on lots of the spokes of this wheel and we can integrate them into a hub. And when they come together in a hub that is able to take advantage of all the minute effects that the, they have individually, it suddenly supercharges this to an enormous effect. And out from there, you have the possibility to operate land, to incubate other businesses and to be a landowner. So this was a really important articulation for us. And we were just about to go to market with this new articulation, asking for a lot less money to come together, to, to start this idea from the systems, systems integrator point and founding a, a food hub together with other businesses. When we were approached by a major global investment organization, an institutional investor, that had back in April, May, picked up a series of podcasts that we put out about our organization on Kuhn van Zijn's podcast, Investing in Regenerative Agriculture. And they said, we really like what you're doing. And this year we've gone through a rearticulation of our values. And you won't be surprised to, to hear that sustainability comes before everything else. So we're looking for projects that can spearhead the development of two things. Firstly, we need to offset carbon and we see that possibility exists in what you're doing. But we also see that there's a new asset class in development, an asset class of regenerative enterprise. And that is what we're interested in as the future that we're seeing. So conversations are underway very early stage and i am not um, privileged to say any more about it at this point but what it emphasizes is the unforeseeable nature of the entrepreneurial journey and how as an entrepreneur you're actually not just yourself and it's not just your own conscious effort you are somebody who sits at the edge of something and you attract other people into the conversation and it may take them some time to get their head around what you're saying. And maybe one, one thing there is that at this time is a bit like a pressure cooker. I think that the COVID pandemic, the climate change we've undergone, the Zoom conversations that we've all been through, and this realization that something has to change all contribute to this. And it's a, 
I don't want to use the word younger because it's also a function of age, but th there's a generation in these institutions that is now somehow empowered to go out and experiment at the margins with how institutions might change from within. And that is also the kind of innovation that's led to this conversation we're now having. There's somebody who's thought about this, thought, how does this work with my organization? How do these projects around the world do this? And how, where's the overlap? How are we going to come together? Really important aspect that I totally overlooked and to be honest, also dismissed. Yeah. So which bit did you overlook and dismiss? I, I, I was less optimistic by the, by, by the summer about the possibility of institutional large global investment companies getting behind this. Because up until that point, it seemed to me as though there was a need for these to be invested in very large scale projects that were repeating something that had already been tried and tested. So there's obviously loads in there I'd really like to uh, go into. I'm really curious, like what the sort of the investment house, you know, where they what their interest, what they understand regenerative enterprise to be. Maybe we can come back to that. The other thing which had really sort of struck by what you're talking about, which I guess is uh, a little bit kind of playing on the language of what you're talking about, but you're in recording those podcasts. There's a, there's a, a kind of an element of planting seeds, aren't there? There's throwing seeds to the wind uh, and you don't really know when those seeds are going to take hold or where those seeds will find their way to. But the importance of you know, actively contributing, actively sharing, because like you say, the entrepreneurial journey will take, you know, I like you talking about the kind of channeling of it. And actually all we can do is engage with it sort of optimistically, curiously, positively, constructively. And, you know, that is a kind of a sowing of seeds, isn't it? And then who knows where the seeds come back to. I really appreciate your use of the word seed as a metaphor here, as it's actually something that came to me in September when I found myself on my own quest, not quite knowing how to take things forward, ended up going on a pilgrimage in Italy with 11 other leaders from different walks of life. And I, under the leadership of Sujit Ravindran, I was walking from a small lakeside village in Italy to the Cathedral of Assisi. And on, on the journey, Sujit posed this riddle to me. And he said that my, my farming idea, this idea of regenerative farming, maybe I should look at it as a, a seed. And a seed, he said, can be a tree. And it can also be bird food. And I wrestled because I didn't want it to be bird food, right? I, and, but then I suddenly recognized that there was a whole lot more to this that the creative gesture of a tree that gives totally freely of all the seeds. We know out of the abundance of forests around us, and we also know the abundance of birds. And so there's actually plenty. And that's precisely what he was on about, is that in the ecosystem, something happens um, that, that can only happen when we just surrender to it. And that's, that's what I experienced here, is that suddenly the conversation came back to us when we least expected it. So, so in, in just to take this articulation to an extreme, it's a little as though we surrendered our idea Whatever was going to happen to it, we were no longer attached to a particular outcome. And it was precisely then that it, as though that was an invitation. And now we could receive this conversation in a way that we wouldn't have been able to before. And it was the soil wasn't ready. So th that, that process, right, which obviously in talking 
is very easily described. I'm going to surrender the idea, you know, what will be, you know, and uh, I'm not going to be sort of attached, of course, is obviously much kind of harder in practice. Was your kind of ability to do that, is that linked to kind of slightly throwaway line you used earlier about the kind of, we took a break. I was really curious what taking a break meant. What did you do? What was your taking a break? Yeah, taking a break was, for me personally, and it's got to be really clear here that I think these journeys are personal. So in the team, it would have been worked out in different ways by different people. But I articulated for myself that I needed to accept that this hadn't worked in the way we had hoped by the date we had set ourselves. And I had to go personally through a process that I would describe as grieving. Having invested uh, so much time and energy in all these conversations, all the preparation, all the emails, all the decks, all the everything that goes into that, all the managing your family in the background with that, and the, the roller coaster your family is on, the hopes, the expectations, the disappointments, the, the constant attachment to a future idea and a future idea and another pivot. I just had to totally step out of that and watch it from the outside and I have this experience of it it not having worked. And that that was a great sadness that I would I would say that that made me depressed in, in so in clinical terms you would call that a depression. But I'm not it's not the first time that I've been at a juncture like that. And so the benefit of a life experience is that I've come to a place where I know at this point is not to continue with the same old, not just to re reappear in the office again. It's you need to do something different. You need to nurture the source, the creative energy inside you. And as I did that, as I went for as I went for walks, as I went for swimming adventures, as I went on camping uh, trips along the Devon coast, I I found this energy rekindling, and I found that the distance had, was reconnecting me to the project in a creative way that made me feel alive again. And it's that's it's that's the reason I started it in the first place. Because I arrived at the conclusion that, well, so what? You know, this is still the major problem. This, nothing has changed. What we have to do is think about how we're going to make it happen anyway. And just because so I'm really keen on this, how this kind of process happens. When, so in going for walks, in going for swims, spending time on the kind of glorious Devon coast and all of that sort of thing was there had you you know was there an agreement among the team look we're just putting this down we'll reconvene in a month's time or something or was there just an awareness that something needed to change I guess I'm curious about the, the formality of the kind of, of the break period and the kind of accepting acknowledging of the process yes so there was at first so if you want we did put in place protocols of how this was going to happen and even those protocols of disintegration, as it were, they, they also pivoted. Quite interesting, because we were ready to do go different paths at different times. So what happened, if you want, at the end of this period was that we had two of our team of five, namely Wayne and Kirsty, step back in, in that they had, uh, from the executive team, in that they had other projects they were engaged in or other needs that they needed to take care of, and they did so. Wayne went back to Royal Agricultural University and continued the second year of his master's and has been doing a few other projects. 
And Kirsty has become the global VP marketing at, at an unrelated organization, Speedo. And Paul, Mark, and myself, we thought also that we were headed for a dissolution. But then we just really, we ended up having a few conversations, a few walks together. And the, the outcome of which was that we are now the executive team, Mark in the role of CEO, I in the role of COO and Paul in the role of CFO. That's the reorganization of the executive team that's taking this forward at this point. You said you sort of assumed you were heading towards these uh, uh, dissolving, essentially, uh, and whether that actually is the thing which then created that that assumption. This is where it's going. Is the thing which allowed the kind of uh, well, we've invited the grief and kind of invited the opportunity for it to go. So, so there was a, a kind of active conscious. Actually, that is dying. An assumption that that was yeah, dying. Yeah, I do, and I do think that death is not a bad term. Yeah, I do think that there's a cycle of life and death or rebirth in ways that, well, apart from it being an ecological phenomenon, I think that it's also so in the creative journey is that sometimes we have to accept the life that something has in and of itself. And however we attach, however attached we are, the attachment isn't going to make it happen. And it's the surrender actually comes in letting go of the attachment and the real mastery is or being able to feel the thing fully and yet being non-attached. I'm still learning that. But so, so this, th at this point, at this particular juncture of my life, I was able to let go. And in that letting go of my attachment, I found myself reconnected. And I would say that the project has, it is a different project. And yet it's also clear that it is the same project. Yeah. I mean, I could do hours of podcast just on this point because I think this inability to let things go which I also is a massive practice for me you know trying to learn how to let things go to create space for new things to go and of course we sort of see this then you know in playing out badly in the work of so many companies and so much about how we sort of exist is actually an inability to let things go to let things die yes it's rationalism taken to the absurd we live in a world that believes that it can control the outcome of things and that works as long as the actual outcome uh, is there but we don't acknowledge that there is so much more that we don't control that contributes to it this is a very slippery slope in terms of the conversation but I, it's often not talked about and often shied away from but i think these this creative journey as an entrepreneur being someone who's actually creative is really important because it, it, the passion for this comes from in my case from my concern for something that is greater. So I consider myself as being in service of something that I find quite hard to express. And on my LinkedIn profile, I say something about a better society and planetary viability. Th those are a bit sort of systems thinking ways of articulating something that's much more compl complex than that. It's about the interwovenness of all things and that we all have a decision to make with every act that we perform as to whether we want to contribute to degeneration or to regeneration. I was, that reminds me, I was listening to an interview that uh, Paul Hawkin, uh, with his, uh, talking about his recent book, Regeneration, and it just actually articulated it in a very sort of similar way to that. Actually, we, at the end of it, we all then have a choice. 
in what we choose to do today, what we choose to buy, what we choose our companies to do. Actually, do I want this act, this endeavor, this effort to be one which ultimately sort of uh, generates life or one which takes away life? Uh, And I think it's a kind of it's a sort of stark and useful. It is. And yet there's also immediately the danger again of the attachment to a particular outcome. And that however hard that one is, I do feel that in my engagement, I have to accept that firstly, I may be wrong. And secondly, that the way I choose to do it, however noble the intent may be wrong. And there's a lot to learn. So the Stepping away from the immediate attachment actually helps me do what I'm doing better. And because it's not about the doing, it's uh, the doing is like the execution of the higher level intuition of how I am engaged with the world around me. And it's the openness to that that I ultimately, that I'm ultimately powered by. So this is why something had to die. What had to die was that this particular, in the summer, this particular way of bringing it about was not working. And it didn't mean that the idea or the, the creative impulse was wrong. And it's the stuckness between the rigidity of my thinking at the time and the potential flexibility that I had to rediscover. That's, that's what I needed to shed. That's, that was the skin I needed to shed. Yeah, it kind of, one, an idea which I sort of explored in writing and talking is one this idea of creative destruction. Because you know, it's just the dying bit is the invitation to living bit. Uh, and you know, I think the anything which helps us on that kind of practice, you know, and just at least remembering the importance of that just feels kind of just really important to me and uh, potentially worthy again of a whole new podcast. It's one, one thing I just sort of pick up on uh, that you referenced. So you were talking about the kind of institutional, the potential institutional partner that had bubbled up through uh, having caught one of the seeds or caught some of the seeds that you'd thrown. And you were talking about, you know, some of the work that was happening on the kind of periphery there and an interest they have uh, using the phrase that this, they had an interest in regenerative enterprise. I'm curious, you know, maybe this is a kind of good segue into uh, into that side of the conversation. When, I mean, so is regenerative enterprise the phrase that they use or was that what you, how you describe what their interest was? Uh, I, w- I would say that the concerns can be expressed in different language. Some organisations express how they work in, on, on a visionary basis and others may express what they do on a functional basis. And we know sort of Simon Sinek's uh, the, the how, the why, and the what ideas. So in this, in this conversations, I would say that there are different levels of work at the same time. It is visionary, it is exploratory, it is in recognition that new things need to de- be developed. And it is also in recognition that we are at a time of transition, meaning there are already things we can do now Carbon sequestration is is one of them. And there's a lot to be said about carbon sequestration, but it is one thing that we can now do. And the, the, this whole thing comes together in a, in a way that is more aligned with the ecosystem and society than business and at scale has maybe operated in the past. So in what, one way of articulating this that I've done in, in previously is that if you look at this fascination with ESG as an investment class, I, I so slightly overstretching the point, but to just uh, but to tease out what I mean is essentially it's possible for a business to put profit first and then use some of the profit to buy 
ecological and social impact and then be classed as an as a high impact ESG, even if the profit initially may not have been derived from actions that were as ecologically or socially responsible as they could have been. So that's, while I'm sure many people would take umbrage with such a perspective, I do think that this puzzle piece approach is how some organizations do it, especially when they find themselves wrestling with major need for change. So you buy in the benefit, essentially. So, so what the extreme end, the extreme other end of this is what I imagine regenerative enterprise to be. This is that all the actions and all the outcomes and all the consideration for all the things that we might impact has led to an arrangement of the business and its operations in such a way that they, they maximize the potential for regeneration. Now, there's, a, there's an economist called James Quilligan who pointed out to me that regenerate, those obsessed with regeneration often miss the fact that our economic system takes advantage of aspects of the ecology that are not renewable. So to be really full about this economic theory that it is, we have often taken into account that there are things that when we use them, we can't recycle them, we can't make them again, they're gone. So in, in our economic thinking, we have to think about that too. But to, get to, to not get too distracted with all the potential pitfalls, the idea of regeneration in this way affects the ecology, it affects the economy, and it affects uh, society. The idea is that we can regenerate, for example, the countryside. We can regenerate the countryside as uh, a place where we live and work, and the amount of money that is there, and the amount of money that may be available for education and healthcare in these areas, and that the jobs people have are more fulfilling and more meaningful, that generally this increases the sense of purpose that humans have, and that is all too often neglected. Then we can think about the economy in a wider sense. How does this contribute to more economic activity or a greater density of economic activity in a particular area with its benefits for the whole elsewhere? And then we can think about the whole, how all of that is stacked ultimately on the one resource we don't think about enough, which is essentially the ecosystem um, for which we often use this metaphor of the planet. Uh, we're not so good about thinking about the immediate locality of ecology. We seem to be much better at thinking about sort of global abstract terms like save the whales or stop air pollution. We find it very difficult to think about what we can do right immediately under our feet. And a, a regenerative enterprise in my way of thinking about it is one that hits the ground with all its activities in such a way that it produces uh, in our case, regenerative or regenerating soil, but you could also talk about regenerating oceans or rivers or uh, riverbeds, depending on what the acid is that you're ultimately embedded in, not to overstretch all these metaphors. But this is the point where the metaphor actually is, a, uh, is literal, is that it's a literal reality. And I believe that there is an infolding possible here or an overlap, a complete overlap of an economy that is based in an ecology. Surprisingly, that's not how our economy functions today. <laughs> So, so we, we talk that one, one analysis talks about planetary boundaries. Uh, what it essentially means is that our, our, our moral or our imperative, growth imperative in the economy 
it, it, it doesn't take into account that we have a finite planet. But by finite planet, we, also, we don't really know that's an abstract notion. What it means is that a particular context has a particular organization of resources. It has a particular amount of resources like rainfall or sunlight or minerals. And what we can do with a regenerative enterprise, and now I'm talking about engaging with that ecosystem directly to grow food and fiber. And my, the idea is that a regenerative enterprise must be based on the stewardship of ecosystem health and that healthy ecosystem also produces food. And from the examples I've seen, I am persuaded that when we do that right, not only will we pr produce more food and higher yields, but we will produce inevitably a much larger variety of food uh, uh, within that yield. So there's a greater yield per area of a, any particular food, but at the same time, greater sum total of the varieties we're growing because we grow them in an integrated way. So that, that, that is, and when you do that, you are at the same time looking after all the sorts of things that in our economic language are called ecosystem services. So we're talking about the sequestration of carbon, which is a side effect of healthy soils. We're talking about water quality improvements, drought and flood resilience, which is again a side effect of healthier soils. One gram of healthy soil absorbs nine grams of water. It acts like the fridge for the ecosystem and it releases the water slowly. And if you're not putting chemicals in, you're using natural inputs in, in cycles and uh, protocols that are in sync with the way it happens in nature, you, you suddenly have a system that has all sorts of externalities that are positive rather than negative. And all of this comes together to the idea of a regenerative enterprise. So if I'm listening to this and I think, well, I'm not in the business of food, so it's not relevant to me. I mean, is, is that true or is that not true? Well, I, had to, I think it's not true, but we're, let's go through some of the nuances of this. But let me start with a conversation with an Australia-based asset management company, one of the really big ones. We had a conversation with them and they said, the 30-year drought in Australia has made us realize one thing. Every single business activity has to be, you have to take the sum total of the entire economy and you have to bring it back down to whether it is contributing to a regenerative ecosystem, to regenerating soils or not. And we cannot invest in anything. We cannot afford to invest in anything that is not, that cannot show, that hasn't articulated its impact and shown that it is ultimately regenerative. Uh, I thought that was very inspired. So based on that statement, I think humans are all too ready to assume that they live in a, in a sort of urban context that's divorced from nature and it's anything but. We have, we, in fact, we, a better word is culture. Humans live in cultures and cultures need to be looked after. And we are recognizing more and more how fragile these cultures are that we've built up along the side of rivers or on seafronts. Nuclear power disasters, uh, global warming, all sorts of things are gradually having an effect. And we're finding that the fortresses we've built are actually quite weak and they have a negative impact. And just to introduce some more concepts here, we, our economy currently thinks in stocks. 
or another way of putting that it thinks in piles. So we've got a pile of this, a pile of wealth, a pile of some resource, but we struggle to think in flows. Nature works in flows. Ecosystems work in flows. A pile somewhere can be very good for the ego. It's very satisfying to have a pile of money or a pile or a, full, a warehouse full of stuff. The problem is that as soon as there's the pile, a buildup of something in nature, we usually have a problem. We have a problem of non-distribution, uh, which can be which can be terrible. But it could also be as it could be disturbing over a small amount of time. So disturbance, when it's impactful over a short space of time, can actually lead to greater resilience. But human human accumulations, human stocks are generally of a kind that they have a polluting effect and the toxicity is long term. So I think anything from the way we flush the toilet, how much water goes down the toilet, the kind of toilet paper we use, the toothbrushes we use, the shopping bags we use, where we go shopping, the food miles, what vehicle we take to this. Do we really have to have this meeting in person? Can we not do it digitally? Who pays? Which source of power powers my computer? There are so many nuances and layers that ultimately all have an ecosystemic impact. And what I'm offering here is a level of awareness, not a level of doing anything better. Just be really clear, I'm surrendering my sense that I know how to deal with all of this. I'm simply at the point of having an awareness of all the things we aren't considering and we ought to consider. I guess so in a sense, that's the invitation to everyone listening is as an invitation to reflect, an invitation to sort of get their own kind of levels of understanding and awareness about what the kind of external impacts of their business, of their activities are to start to understand the flow and the connection between what, between what they're doing. Yeah, man, I'd like to connect this to an, uh, an earlier aspect of our conversation where we were talking about audit regimes in relationship to organic. So, so once again, without wanting this to be a criticism, but wanting to reflect on a practice and recognize its shortcomings, the audit regimes and quality assurance regime, regimes that our civilization depends on are by and large what's called input audits. They don't assess the outcome of something. They assess what we put into something. And then we have the assumption that we, if we leave something out, like chemicals and pesticides, that it's net, inevitably healthier and inevitably more ecologically friendly. And we now know that's not yet the case. So there is more work to be done. We, so my, my, my thought was connecting this to, well, how can we do it differently? The first thing I said at the time was that let's focus on outcomes. That doesn't mean that the inputs don't matter, but it's the ingredients and the recipe together that looks at how have we actually increased biological diversity? Is the effluent from this farm, does it really contain fewer minerals? Is the carbon actually sequestering? Does the soil run off when it rains? Those kind of questions are quite relevant. So how do we then get to a place where we've improved on that? That, that requires an understanding of the factors at work in an ecosystem. But the point I was trying to get to here is that maybe we're a bit too hard on ourselves. This is an enormous project that we're trying to stem. We're trying to stem an enormous tide. So our articulation is that when we're trying to be regenerative, we're on a journey. This isn't about a hurdle rate. 
After which, once we've achieved that, we just continue doing the same, believing that it's right because we passed some kind of a hurdle. Rather, we see this as a journey of continuous improvement. Anybody, wherever they are, can orientate themselves in the regenerative direction. Wherever you are, you can start now. And you can do, make tiny adjustments, adjustments that you are able to manage with all the time pressures, with the shopping habits, with the budgets, with the time you've got, with the conversations you can have with your family. They don't have to be onerous and unachievable because that's the best recipe to start off very enthusiastically and then find yourself not getting very far at all. It's got to be fun and you've got to notice that actually you can have an impact. So the, it's fun is maybe the, not the right word, but rewarding. The reward comes from it being achievable as well as from it having an impact. So when we start looking at a regenerative direction and decide that we're going to put the momentum that we can in that direction, that's our belief, our articulation. Then we are beginning the regenerative journey. This is not an invitation to keep it at a low level. It is an invitation to start at a low level and see that actually, in, especially in business, your input costs start to go down. It's rewarding to have greater profitability, to find that your farm is more resilient to pest to pest, all out of itself. The, these, there are so many benefits attached to this that each farmer on their own land will discover in their own way. Uh, every household, every that, that we can break this down into all the fractals of our society. But your question was, is, does this just apply to farming or does it apply to other aspects? And my answer is, I think this is an issue of our civilization, everything we do. New Foundation Farms, it's a new foundation, as in the idea is, it's a new foundation for our civilization. So one of the other things that I was really interested in, which I heard you speaking about before and you touched on earlier, I think uh, coming out of the the... Uh, the, the, this kind of the relationship between kind of the ideas of employee benefit and how that might uh, sort of be an expression too of these uh, more resilient ideas, uh, more regenerative ideas. And so is that another way that uh, these regenerative ideas are turning up in new foundation farms? Yeah, you've heard me talk about creativity and that being the source for my own work, but also my belief that in a way we all channel something from an inarticulable source that we don't control or create, although we often believe we do. I believe that value system can be reflected in the way we work together as organizations as well. And one of the things that we've been exploring at New Foundation Farms is how we might reward everybody who works for and with New Foundation Farms in a way that allows them to benefit from its profitability. So I, when I started my working life, I had a very uneasy relationship with profit. I somehow, uh, despite the fact that I wanted some of it, I also felt it was a dirty thing. I now recognize that ecosystems depend 100% in each layer on profitability. That is, it's a hygiene factor. When something works well, it produces a profit and then that becomes the seedbed of another layer. So. In New Foundation Farms, we not only uh, will have many more employees, so a much higher density of employees per area of farmland, we also will have these employees participating 
in the profitability of the organization. And for me, that comes with a change of value and a change of culture to people who have responsibility for their area of work rather than that they are operatives that have a standing operating procedure that they need to before perform and then they will be evaluated. The reason why there are areas where that might make sense for somebody to operate in that way, that is a question of the outcome of the job, not of the need to control an organization at every level from the top down. So, and just to, to, just to illustrate why this is important, not just as a value system that's desirable and that we all might want to work like that, rather it makes sense when you consider that when you're working with an ecosystem, every ecosystem is unique. Working in a regenerative way is something that is context specific. And the, the journey of finding out about the context never ends because the context actually changes. So when you're going through an ongoing evolution, in the extreme cases of regenerative agriculture, you'll find that the landscape you're operating in changes every year on the basis that you are regenerating the landscape. We are used to agriculture in simplified landscapes where we put a huge amount of destructive energy into keeping them at a very simple level. When we operate with an ecosystem towards its potential, it's going to change and the change will have an impact. It's a non-linear logic. And that requires everybody involved to work with the full apparatus of our sensory instruments that we can bring to the table and be a part of this. And you, what, what that means is you become a knowledge worker. You're bringing yourself to bear with your knowledge and that's valued. And that means that you've got an opportunity to innovate. And job satisfaction, I believe, comes from many things, including the variety of different tasks, the connection of input to output. So if people are connected to the profit share, that is a way of the overall team effort being rewarded when everybody has innovated profitably together. And the third thing is control over my domain. So there's a, we currently generally expect people to perform to a job description. What that uh, does do is it excludes the potential for me to innovate within that job. And while there are limitations to everything I've just said, the limitations should be dictated by the outcome in service of the overall um, organization as opposed to my management style because it suits my ego. And so essentially what we're talking about is roles defined by outcome, not roles defined by tasks. Yeah. In, and I believe that humans, independent of their level of schooling, when it is invited, have a thirst uh, and an inquisitive nature that... What they are good. We are naturally good at connecting to other people and, in fact, the landscape around us when we are, when we are invited to do so. And that, that is a journey that there will be many mistakes made. And maybe I'll have to revise my statement, but that is the belief with which I'm going into this. Yeah. And I mean, I, yeah, it, it would be a belief I share. And I guess one, uh, a fourth point I would add to your three in terms of the kind of the human response is, which is uh, touched on what you just said there, there is a wish to learn and a wish to develop. Uh, and so of course, you know, if we have that input output, we have a feeling of agency, we have a feeling of being valued and being connected to outcome. And we have an environment, a culture, which, you know, is richer by me learning. And I appreciate that. Of course, then there is a kind of dynamism in there, which, you know, has to talk to who we are. Absolutely agree. 
I believe this word agency that you've just used is very key. We are by and large held hostage by a situation that the natural agency or authority we carry is often educated out of us for, with the best of intents. But unfortunately, it has the side effect that we are not able to celebrate ourselves as creative beings and we depend on the authority of other people to lead our lives according to this or that latest diet, as opposed to finding what the diet is in all possible ways that is the right one for us. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess one thing I sort of would like to just to explore before we kind of finish, and it would be great to revisit a lot of these things as your journey unfolds, which would be good to follow. The, this, the, how the in your developing conversations with the possible institutional investor partner, how is profit being discussed in that? I mean, have you got that far down the road? How is profit coming up in uh, in these conversations with investors? and what you might do with it. Well, um, I, I, we, we are in the early stages of working out an agreement. And I, I really need to be vague to allow as much creativity as possible. I would say that obviously there's an assumption that we will be profitable. And a lot of attention is being given to the fact that we've made claims around this form of agriculture and working within the agri-food system is more profitable. And there's also a recognition that there's a connection, although it's not a necessary connection, between the profitability and the ecosystem services that this impacts on. So, so those things are being recognized as part of the understanding of what a regenerative enterprise is in this conversation. And I'm really pleased about this institutional interest in, in, in this because it's such a positive sign. Have you, I know sort of cooperative is a loaded word, but just the kind of principles of involving everybody in the journey, uh, whether that's understood cooperatively, whether that's understood as kind of employee ownership, those kind of ideas, are those principles and ideas which uh, through all of the conversations you had with institutional partners were respected and acknowledged and likely to remain on the table? Or is that something which uh, you were sensing sort of conflict and uh, uncertainty around? Oh, it's a, it's a really good question. And yes, cooperative is a loaded term, but there are in the, certainly in agriculture, many very good examples of cooperatives serving a very good outcome in terms of, uh, of running a complex business. So, so I don't see that, I don't see the term or the history of cooperative as a hurdle. I think the main issue for us in our analysis of land ownership was not that you had to own the land, but that given the mindset that we were working into at the moment, the fastest and uh, the greatest impact in the shortest possible time is guaranteed if you own the land, if you own and control the land that you're also working on. And that once that's demonstrated at scale, you can explore others. I mean, ultimately, the, in terms of the structural conversations, we've uh, learned much about, it's more important that we consider uh, some kind of a split between the land holding and the operations on the land and how they, so I, I think that overall as a society, we still see that we still see somehow that the management of land is tied to the ownership. I think that actually the commons was a great idea and it was, and the mindset that removed the commons was a very short-sighted one. It was personal gain over collective benefit. But how exactly that translates into a business model, I couldn't tell you yet. 
I can say that there are early examples of landowners experimenting with bringing lots of different people that run different but integrated enterprises on the same land together in this way that I described as vertically stacking. And that is definitely something that's central to the new foundation farms model. So, so it's whether you're an employee or whether you're self-employed, what matters beyond that, what's more important is what impact or what outcome the integration of all of these activities has. I think for me, these ideas are all so interesting because they talk to resilience, they talk to adaptability, they talk to creativity. And, you know, in that sort of classic sort of, you know, I was thinking about how our listeners may come to these ideas. I'm really interested in the idea that actually the way they might come to these ideas is because, you know, all entrepreneur, all businesses, they're looking for resilience. They're looking for ways. We were talking, you know, before the podcast about how kind of business schools teach the illusion of control, teach the illusion of management and how we can do all of those things. And of course, that also talks to a human nature. We try to make order. We try to make predictability out of things. And to the extent of that kind of is possible or not possible, you know, it is also true that when you're running an organization, you're keen to do the things which increase the likelihood of that organization, that idea gaining traction and it's surviving. And I think any ideas which let, which, you know, which talk to resilience, which talk to adaptability, which talk to fostering our own creativity have to increase the likelihood of that happening. And I think everything that it feels to me, everything that you are trying to do with New Foundation Farms and all the ideas that you're talking to actually talk to that and that's the kind of really interesting thing to my mind in a way that might help these ideas become even more accessible to more people absolutely i couldn't agree more and it's such a shame that we've run out of time because there's a whole host of management frameworks that have been developed elsewhere in the world that really allow a day-to-day -day operation of an organization in a way that is non-linear while at the same time builds knowledge etc. In, in holistic ways that we, we generally find ourselves not schooled in until we look for them. Right. So that is the invitation because that alone is another whole area I'd be really keen to get into. Some of those frameworks, some of those perspectives that will help people engage with that. Yeah, just, uh, I mean, uh, just two things I can drop in there as uh, the world of permaculture and the world of holistic management uh, as pioneered by Alan Savory and the Savory Institute bit of a marmite, a phrase, if I'm permitted to say that, and Savory also has people who do not agree with him. But if you, again, if you look at the outcomes of his work in, uh, across the globe, at the regeneration of landscapes through grazing approaches, you, you'll see that the grass really is taller where a holistic management hasn't been applied than where it hasn't. So there's something intrinsic to the management framework that is able to, to, to operate as a form of action research and for the outcome of the action research to inform management decisions that, that people have spent decades thinking about this stuff and uh, gradually we're hearing more about this kind of thing in the mainstream fantastic marcus thank you so much for your time contribution energy insight it's really inspiring to hear uh, and i'm sort of hugely appreciative of you taking the time to yeah, share with absolutely. us absolutely the pleasure is mine ben really enjoyed this call really enjoyed your questions uh, it's not felt like a podcast interview but more like a, a conversations of like-minded people thank you so much thank you for listening i hope you enjoyed that conversation with marcus 
if you like what we're doing and you like the sound of these conversations, of course, go to the website to check out the others. Uh, if you search up buddhaontheboard.com and look for peripheral thinking, you'll find everything that we do there. And of course, if you like it or you didn't even like it, whatever it may be, feel free to share it. Uh, that is the lifeblood of what we're trying to do here is getting these conversations out to anybody who would benefit. So if there's anyone you know who would benefit, please feel free to share. Until next time. Thanks. Bye bye.